If you ever take a hypnobirthing class, it will never include homework because what mammal out there in the world is preparing for childbirth by studying or learning anything on a conscious level? My mother is expecting to be in the birthing room with me and my husband. My husband and I both have a good relationship with my mother, but we aren't sure that we're really comfortable with this idea. I'm past my due date and my doctor suggested that she could strip my membranes. Is this an effective strategy for getting labor going? I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. All right, Cynthia, we are back, and this question is for you. All right, let's do it. Hello, ladies. I'm struggling with something, and I wanted to get your input. My mother is expecting to be in the birthing room with me and my husband. My husband and I both have a good relationship with my mother, but we aren't sure that we're really comfortable with this idea. First, my husband is worried that she'll interfere or insert herself where he should be. He will ultimately do what I want, but I'm not sure how I feel about this either. My mother and I are very close, and a part of me wants to give her the gift of seeing her grandchild's arrival. Do you have any suggestions as to what I can do? I always find this to be a really interesting question, and I can already envision 95% of our listeners with their jaws dropped like you would have your mother in the birthing room. But yeah, for some people, they're in this exact situation. I've even had clients, I've had one client who um, had her mother-in-law in in the birthing room. I mean, you never know who is right for whom, but... um, I've even had fathers in birthing rooms and I've heard and sisters-in-law. So I think there's always an interesting thing about mothers though. I do think that they're uh, very unique in this um, as we ponder these options. Well, first I just want to point out that the language that to, to the woman who wrote in, I just want to point out the first thing that jumped out was that you said, my mother is expecting to be in the birthing room with me and my husband. I'm so curious about that because was she expecting to be in the birthing room just by virtue of your being pregnant and you're going to have a baby and she's expecting it because she's assuming that she will be there or is she expecting it because you've already invited her and now you're considering removing that invitation? I think if it's the former and she is just expecting it without having had a discussion with you, I think that's worth paying attention to because one of the next things I want to talk about is boundaries. How well does your mother respect your boundaries and your husband's boundaries? Your husband already seems to be a little bit concerned about a boundary issue, or he wouldn't have said that she'll somehow insert herself. And I do want to share a very interesting anecdote with you. I had a client who was very close with her own mother, and she had her mother come to the birthing room in the hospital, and she ended up having a very, very prolonged but what turned out to be natural vaginal birth, no epidural, nothing. And having a natural birth was of the utmost importance to this woman. And her mother knew that. And when the labor became prolonged, there was a period in which the mother was pulling the midwives into the hallway of the hospital saying, I want you to put her on Pitocin right now and speed this up. You can respond. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't my eyes respond? 
<laughs> no, yes, but our listeners don't yeah. hear your, your big eyes opening. Isn't that shocking? Yeah, it's shocking. But I can understand you kind of can't blame the mother. She's Mothers are always going to be thinking that they know what's best for their child, even though we know as grown adults that they certainly don't always know what is best for us. But to do that is certainly a crossing of boundaries. And I'm a little bit curious to see how the provider responded to that. Oh, they came and told the birthing mother this is, you know, like they couldn't control the mother. I, 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 I don't think that's one of the cases, in my opinion, like you can't blame the mother because I'm thinking, you know, this is, this, is, this is a communication thing. But, you know, when your daughter is a grown woman, you need to start respecting her as your emotional equal. And now this is your daughter's birth. This is her life event. And it's a privilege even for the mother to be there. It really is a privilege. She doesn't have to be there. She knew her daughter wanted a natural birth and she was taking the providers aside and trying to manipulate the situation against her daughter's own wishes. I thought that was just a great example of how severe this can go when you come from that generous place of, but my mother wants to be there. Now, I don't know if I'll ever hear a story like that again. I think that was so extreme and shocking. I don't think I would. But what you can consider is how would your mother handle it if you're uncomfortable, if you do have um, a medical situation going on? I had to make this own decision with my mother, who is by far the closest female to me. And I just recognized that our mothers love us in a way our partners do not. And if I had any indication of being uncomfortable or anything other than completely happy and relaxed, that worried look would show up on my mother's face in an instant. And then that worried look would mess with me because I'm so tied to how she feels emotionally. It's a very intense bond, mother and daughter. So I think some women can handle this together and I think others cannot. My mother and I both recognized, why don't you stay a few feet away behind the closed door and be there the moment this baby is out, but let's protect you from whatever you think I'm experiencing and protect me from worrying about how you're doing. Like me worried about my mother during my labor would have been a, a, a reality. Yes, that is definitely not what a laboring woman needs to be worried about. Yeah, I mean, even in my labor at home where, where you were present and Alex was four years old and I was in labor, I remember saying to my husband, if Alex chooses to be in the birthing room when, when, we're, when we're having the baby, if he asks any questions at all, be sure to answer him because my I was so focused on my son's experience through my labor and it was a it was great it turned out well he was calm I was calm but if I hadn't been my first thought would have been how is he interpreting or responding to what I'm going through and I think my mother is the only other person I would I would have a very quick reaction to in the same way like how, is she okay watching me in labor in the, the case of my mother we both recognized she really wouldn't be <laughs> but a step away behind the closed door was perfect and she could walk right in after. So this is the big question to ask. Would your mother be in that room for her sake or for your sake? That's it. You have your answer now. If she would be there for her sake, you really need to reconsider this. If she would be there for your sake because you're comforted by her, because you feel better with her there, because she'll take care of you in a way that you need her to, then absolutely have your mother there. Once you make that decision to have your mother there, or by the way, a sister, a sibling, another parent, an in-law, a friend, it is extremely important, in my opinion, to go through your expectations of them. What are the boundaries going to look like, right? Are they going to be quiet? Are they going to be talkative? Are they going to be vocal, your advocate? Are they just going to physically touch you? 
Are they just going to run errands and get you things? It really has to be hammered out. And then I think it can be the best of, of all worlds. And I have to say, I would not discount your husband's reservations. This is his birth and his baby too. So it's very lovely of him to say, you're going to make the ultimate decision. I think everyone around you should be saying that, that you make the ultimate decision. But if he has reservations, I would, I would really give that a lot of thought. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> I, Sometimes I feel like... <laughs> I, I think that it's really, that's one of those things that like the answer truly is already there. Like it's, it's, you know, you yeah. know, she, she knows this, this woman yeah, knows. I mean, you, it's you, just it's the, the feeling like so many times people are thinking, oh good, I have someone I can ask and they'll tell me what to do. And we're just like, good yeah. luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, okay. <laughs> Cause it's, it's a very personal decision. How could we possibly know right. it is, it is as right for some people as it is wrong for others. And none of these decisions have anything to do with how much you love your mother. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it has nothing to do with your love for your mother. It has to do with what your needs are during the birth. So, yeah. All right. What's our next one? Let me look at this. Trisha, I've got one here. Are you ready for, ready for me to read I one? I am ready. This one says, I'm past my due date. I hope that came in this week. Um, and she's still pregnant. But <laughs> let's, I'm past my due date, and my doctor suggested that she could strip my membranes. Is this an effective strategy for getting labor going? So let me just begin by um, explaining what stripping the membranes means. The membranes are the amniotic sac, and a provider can go into the vagina and actually into the cervix, if the cervix is already slightly dilated, and can use their fingers to gently pull the amniotic sac away from its attachment to the lower uterine segment. And in doing that, the body will actually release prostaglandins and prostaglandins are one of the mechanisms that help our body get into labor. Um, this technique can reduce the length of pregnancy by about two to five days. Just because it will um, generally shorten the duration of pregnancy, it doesn't mean that it will always put a woman into labor. So I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but basically it means that your body must be already very near yeah. going into labor for this technique to work. And overall, it does seem to shorten pregnancies by a few days. There's a 20% increase in the likelihood of going into labor. That's it. So for some women, it's not going to have an impact because if the baby isn't anywhere close to ready, nothing will happen. But if she is close, it looks like it can kind of trip the process into happening. And it shakes out to be about 20% of the time, apparently. It's really a good technique for that woman whose provider is saying it's time to get you on the induction schedule and they're going to ask them to come in for a chemical induction, but the woman would like to try an alternative first. It is a very quick process. It's just a few swipes of the fingers, but those few swipes can be uncomfortable for women. And then sometimes it does cause uterine irritability for hours to sometimes even days afterwards. There are a few contraindications for it, but for the most part, it is a good option for women who are close to term and hoping to avoid a chemical induction. So just one more note on this, that if you're going to have your membranes stripped, you should be consenting to it. And if you are consenting to a vaginal exam, you may inadvertently be opening up that possibility that they just might go strip your membranes without your knowledge. So just be aware that that is a conversation out there 
That's a really good point about informed consent because it is really all too easy when you go in for a visit to your provider and they do a digital vaginal exam and they suggest, well, we could just strip your membranes, but um, premature rupture of the membranes does potentially put you at risk of other complications in the labor process. Yeah, this always comes down to consent. We have one here that is a postpartum question related to the baby. It says, my baby is 14 days old and losing weight. His pediatrician told me that I need to start supplementing with formula. I've been exclusively breastfeeding since he was born and really don't want to use formula. What can I do? And what if he refuses to take my breast? Meaning after the formula is introduced, I assume. Yes, I think that's the concern that after giving the baby formula in a bottle that the baby will then refuse the breast. So this is always a tough situation. I've seen it a lot of times and it is very difficult for mothers who are fully committed to breastfeeding to even consider the use of formula. But I will say this, if the baby is 14 days old and losing weight, then the breastfeeding relationship is already compromised and introducing formula or any form of supplemental milk, whether that's donated milk or if you had happened to have pumped milk for some reason, um, that is what you are going to need to introduce to your baby in order to catch them up on their weight. I see. And the reason I say catch your baby up on their weight is that in order for a breastfeeding relationship to work, supply and demand have to be in sync. And if a baby is underweight, that means that they are underfeeding. And if they're underfeeding, that means that they are actually sending the message to your breast and to your body that says, I don't need as much milk as you can make. Right. And therefore, they're going to underfeed and grow more slowly. And that process, if it goes unchecked and goes on for too long, can actually uh, be the reason and often is the reason that women end up not being able to breastfeed for the long term. Right. So the reason that the pediatrician is recommending formula is because most likely this is a supply issue. Now, there are cases where it could be some other reason that the baby's just not feeding frequently enough, but the milk supply is still plenty adequate. So if you feel that you can pump enough milk to sufficiently supplement the baby with the additional um, the additional ounces that your baby needs, then then that would work too. But generally, this happens in an undersupply situation, and we need to catch the baby up with supplemental or donated milk while we stimulate the breast to increase the milk volume and get supply and demand back on track, and then we can go back to just regular breastfeeding. So then, like, what do you do? You just have to focus on pumping a little extra or getting the baby to the breast more often to get supply and demand back in sync? Or is it just... A done deal by then. I mean, so no, it is definitely not um, okay. a done deal. This is a situation where I would strongly recommend getting a lactation consultant involved because it is cumbersome and it can feel complicated and overwhelming and it can feel very discouraging um, and sometimes you know emotionally draining. So having the support of a professional lactation consultant who can help coach you through and guide you and regular weight checks will also be really important. Yeah. This plan is all about preserving the breastfeeding relationship with your baby and trying to get back to that as quickly as possible through the catch-up weight process. And while you're on this plan, you are definitely still breastfeeding and um, spending as much time skin-to-skin -skin as possible. 
Can you respond to the last part of her question where she says, what if he refuses to take my yes, breast? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for um, bringing me back to that part of the question. It can happen, but I will tell you that it is almost always about flow. So the reality is that your baby definitely prefers your breast and the warmth of your body and the texture of your skin over the silicone nipple. However, when they are underweight, they will prefer to feed wherever the flow is faster. And if your milk supply is compromised and your, and your flow is slower because you are producing less milk, then they're going to prefer the bottle for a period of time. As soon as your baby's weight is caught up and your breast uh, milk supply is also caught up and your flow increases at your breast, at that point, you should be able to go back and forth between bottle and breast without any difficulty. So I really encourage women to think about this as not a preference for a breast or a bottle, but simply a flow preference. So once you get that flow back up to speed, you should be able to get the baby back to the breast, the weight will be caught up, and hopefully everything will be a lot easier from then on, and your breastfeeding relationship with your baby will be able to last for a very long time. So I'm glad you wrote in on this question, and I hope that... Um, you get started right away on a plan, and it is most definitely not too late. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable, and Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com and use promo code down to birth. I am preparing for my second child this fall and I am interested in taking the hypnobirthing series for the first time. I took the Bradley method classes for my first birth and I found them helpful and was able to have an unmedicated vaginal birth. How can hypnobirthing build upon my existing knowledge and further prepare me to have another good experience the second time around? I always crack up at the word unmedicated because it makes medicated the default rather than natural. And it's like the word uncircumcised rather than using the word intact. It's like as if circumcised is the default, how we're all born. And then it's like, this one is uncircumcised. Right. So Remember how we were going to do a whole episode on language? This is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. I love language and it is a big part of the hypnobirthing, but it's always been a big part of me as well. So I'm always noticing language. Um, yeah, I can speak to this. I get this question a lot, and I, I hope I do write by Bradley in my response. I, I think I will, and I, I certainly hope to. So first, I am a certified hypnobirthing instructor, and I have, I'm an expert in this method. I've taught thousands of people, and I, I've been doing this for many years, and I've studied it far beyond my basic credentials. So I have a lot of experience and knowledge with hypnobirthing. With the Bradley method, my experience is only as follows. Basically, A, when I was pregnant with my son, before I read and took the hypnobirthing class, I read the complete Bradley Method book. And then B, in all these years that I've been serving clients, I have had many women exactly like this one who said, 
They took Bradley for the first baby, had a natural birth in most cases, and then wanted to take hypnobirthing for the second. I have never heard anything negative about Bradley. I think all of these methods are doing a wonderful job. We're all interested in evidence-based birth. We're all here to tell women their rights. Um, we're all here to serve women and to make them the focus of, of this experience. So I'm thrilled with all of the methods that are out there. Um, hypnobirthing is unique and I think it is currently getting so much press and attention in the media because of just the way that uh, it seems humans are evolving in their interests these days when it comes to mind-body and everything like that because hypnobirthing is very mind-body centric. But let me give a few distinctions between the two that I'm aware of. One is that the Bradley class is significantly longer. It is a 12-week class. Hypnobirthing is a 12-hour class. It's about four weeks. Another distinction is that the Bradley method has homework in the program. Hypnobirthing by definition will never include homework because what mammal out there roaming the earth is preparing for childbirth by studying or learning anything on a conscious level. So hypnobirthing is about getting in tune with what we know you already have and know on an unconscious level, just like you unconsciously from the moment you were born, we're going to be perfectly capable of you know, going to the bathroom and having sex and, and having babies, like all the things that humans do. So we don't want to keep you in your conscious mind. We want to get you away from that. And imagine if you had a homework assignment and didn't do well on it, and then God forbid concluded you're not ready to give birth when that has absolutely nothing to, to do with giving birth. So the duration of the course is different. The fact that hypnobirthing does not ever have homework is different. And now let's talk for a moment about your partners. Bradley has historically been referred to as husband coached childbirth. I think that started in the 70s. I don't know if they're, they've modified it lately. I, I would imagine, hopefully they have, but husband coached. So let's just set aside the word husband, first of all, which already is not appropriate for so many couples. Coached is, is a big difference between the philosophies. In hypnobirthing, no one is going to coach you through childbirth. It is a mother-led class. Imagine holding a yoga pose and someone coming up next to you and telling you how to breathe and how distracting that might be when you're in your flow, when you're just in your body, you're in your breath and you're focusing. So in hypnobirthing, no one is there to coach you. Your partner, if you have a partner, you're, you're fine if you don't have a partner in hypnobirthing, but if you have a partner, their job is to take care of everything outside of you, to make sure that room is treating you with respect, that it's peaceful, that it's quiet, that you are allowed to go within and birth your baby. But it is not about the partner ever telling you to breathe, telling you how to breathe, timing things and asking you questions, or, t or yelling push, or saying push, or telling you how to push. So that approach is also very different. This is a program that emphasizes, I think the intention is emphasizes a deep self-trust. That said, I think Bradley accomplishes that very well also, just in a, in a different way. And then the only other distinction that I'm aware of is that Bradley talked a lot about pain management. And that doesn't resonate for everyone and some people feel comforted by that. But in hypnobirthing, we don't even talk about pain. We don't use the word pain. Whatever we feel in childbirth, we can learn to interpret in a different way. Like, oh, I had such a crampy feeling or I had this, this backache with every single surge. 
surge right there. That's a word that's, that's hypnobirthing. We don't say contraction, we say surge, a lifting, a rising. So the language between the two programs is different as well. But honest to God, I don't think you can go wrong. I think they're both excellent programs. I think it's a matter of just finding a, a good instructor, whatever you do, and making sure the philosophy of the approach resonates with you. There is not a bad decision to be made here and kudos to you to even be educating yourself and preparing because that is the bottom line and that's definitely going to benefit you. That is an excellent explanation of the differences between the courses. But I am curious about the bookwork aspect in um, Bradley. I feel that there's a lot of sort of the basics of pregnancy, the stages of pregnancy, what to expect. Do you do a whole lot of that in hypnobirthing as well? Nope. That is exactly what we're trying to get away from in hypnobirthing. But it's very much about how do you focus? How do you use your mind? How do you use your breath and your physiology to get through any difficult moment in life? Or whether it's difficult or easy, how to get through any moment in life. So what are you going to visualize? What language is going to be used around you? There, that said, it's a very practical class as well. Like there's a detailed walking through all of the options in your birth plan and all of the ways to like, you know, we talk about induction and membranes releasing and what if it's groupy strap and what if it's preeclampsia. And- right. Educating yourself on how to make informed choices as opposed to just getting the basic nitty gritty of pregnancy stages and things of that nature. Absolutely. Yeah. There's absolutely none of that in hypnobirthing. And I challenge my clients a lot because I think I mentioned this in one of our podcast episodes, but I like to play around with them a little bit too, because you know we all hear the comedians telling their jokes about like, oh, well, you don't have to give birth to something the size of a watermelon. And everyone likes to laugh about these things, but then it scares women into thinking, well, how does something this big come out of something this tiny? And I, sometimes I explain it to people like, well, this is what happens. The baby touches the perineum and there's a surge of relaxing and the perineum suddenly yields. It's been waiting its whole life, its whole life, it's been waiting its whole life to yield when there was a baby's head there. And the vast majority of women absolutely do not tear when they choose their own position for birthing. But after I explained it to my clients, I like to say, did you really need to know now? Like, could you have just trusted that we're here after hundreds of thousands of years, like we're here for a reason. This has always been meant to be safe. It's always been meant to, to be with the intention of your survival and your baby's survival. Like it's nice and comforting to be like, oh, cool. So, okay, so that's why my perineum can yield to something the size of a head. But did we have to know or could we have just simply trusted? Could we have just trusted? Unfortunately, we've been taught that it is not safe and that it is unnatural and that it does require intervention or that it may not go the way it's supposed to. So it's really almost like we have to go through this unlearning process. That's exactly right. The language I usually use is we're restoring you to what you already do know on a cellular level, but it is an unlearning. And I'm, this is why it's changed my life. I'm that classic person who loves an explanation for things. I love to study. I, I would have loved homework in a childbirth class. That was like right up my alley. Like, give me the homework. I'll, pro- I'll provide beautiful homework assignments every week if you want me to. But there was some, I think, inner wisdom in me that was practicing yoga for years that kind of recognized, maybe I need to get away from this part of me and just trust that it will go well. And now that I'm going to trust it, how do I facilitate it? And then the challenge, and for me, the emotional growth was in the trust, in the letting go. 
not which is which is like counter to everything I had ever done in my life up until then, which is all about studying and tests and learning. And this is like, no, you're going to let go of your your need to do that. And you're going to just trust that this is how the process goes. And yes, fortunately, there is the component of the class that teaches like, well, what if this does go off course? What if this doesn't go well? What do we do then? What questions you ask? What are your rights? When do you really need medical intervention as opposed to when you probably don't? So that, that does get addressed, of course, as well. So, yeah. Cool. All right, Trisha, I can't even pronounce this word. Cystocele? Exactly. Yes, that is it. All right. The question is, I don't have any issues related to sex, but my midwife did tell me that I do have a cystocele, which I guess is bladder prolapse. I definitely don't notice it unless I jog or jump, and I have trouble with holding in my pee sometimes. My midwife recommended that I try Kegel weights, so I bought a set that came with great reviews. But I have no trouble with even the heaviest weight, so I'm wondering if you have a recommendation on what I should do next. So the fact that you're experiencing some amount of urine leaking with jogging, jumping, or probably even when you sneeze is definitely not uncommon for women after um, having had childbirth. However, it is something that should resolve on its own um, as the pelvic floor muscles regain their strength. So if it hasn't, and I don't know exactly how far out postpartum you are, but I would say that that is something that would require a um, pelvic floor therapist to discuss with you and see if there's some additional things that you can do. As far as the cystocele goes, a cystocele is a basically a protrusion or a pushing of the bladder into the anterior vaginal wall. Um, there are degrees of severity of it. So you can have a very, very mild cystocele that, you know, you sometimes have just after birth and it self-resolves, or you can have much larger degrees of it that can become much more complicating. But a lot of it has to do with pelvic floor laxity, meaning weak muscles in the pelvic floor. So everything about um, improving it is related to strengthening the pelvic floor. And what if it's just really severe? In the more severe cases of a cystocele, sometimes you have to actually have surgery or take hormones or um, use something called a pessary. But none of that sounds like what we're dealing with here. This just sounds like a case of mild cystocele related to childbirth. And as those pelvic floor muscles get worked on and strengthened, um, it should resolve. If other symptoms develop or this isn't resolving with the Kegel weight exercises, as I said, pelvic floor therapy is definitely the next best step. Okay. And Trisha, I told you I wanted to surprise you with a question that I get all the time that only a midwife or obstetrician can answer, but how can you tell what a woman, how can you tell how dilated a woman is? Um, you mean without doing a vaginal exam? No, I don't mean that. Oh, it's okay. all art, right. right? Okay. Well, sure. There's a little bit of science to it, but yes, a lot of art to it. Um, but the reason I said without doing a vaginal exam is because there are actually ways that you can gauge cervical dilation without doing a vaginal exam. That purplish line that appears on the lower back. Yeah. So it's not really always very accurate, but yes, the line on the low back can give you a little bit of a gauge and also, you know, the, you know, after you've watched enough women go through labor, 
you can get a pretty good sense of where a woman is in labor just by her behavior, especially if they're in transition, which is the eight to 10 centimeter time frame. There are some very clear signs that women exhibit when they're in this stage of labor. But as far as it goes for measuring the cervix um, digitally, it's done with two fingers inserted into the vagina and you reach your fingers all the way up into the cervix using your pointer finger and your middle finger. For most um, practitioners, the, the, the 10 centimeter mark is basically about as far apart as you can spread those two fingers. For people with smaller hands, they may only be able to get to nine centimeters. So you know that you're at 10, 10 centimeters if you go past the um, width that you can actually spread your fingers. So digital, not meaning technology. Yes, yes, exactly. Digital meaning your finger, definitely not technology. Actually, it's surprising that nobody's come up with that kind of tool yet. Yeah, everyone, please don't try to use your iPhones for this. I mean, it really is a skill that you develop over time. I can recall in school measuring a woman's cervix and thinking she was like five centimeters and my professor uh, or preceptor would come in and be like, nope, try seven, seven and a half. And you know, you just, you learn. I think probably most providers would agree with me that the, the, the distance between like four and seven centimeters is the hardest under four, especially under three, easy peasy. And you know, after eight to 10, that's easy. Like everybody can kind of get that, that right. One thing that blows people's minds apparently is how can it be that all women of all shapes and sizes around the world all get to 10? Are there women, I've always heard nine and a half or 10, but are there women who like get to eight and a half and they're ready to have the baby and women who go to 11? Not, not to make a spinal tap reference. <laughs> go ahead. So cervical dilation is not just about the opening of the cervix. It also has to um, thin out and efface. So there are actually three variables that we're looking at in cervical dilation. So you have the openness, the thickness, and the length of the cervix. Now, before it can be really opening, you have to, um, the thickness has to go away and the length has to shorten. So you're looking at all those things when you're assessing where a woman is in labor. But the most important piece of it is that full dilation is the absence of the cervix. It is fully opened, it fully thinned, and fully shortened. And measuring it is an art, basically. So yes, it definitely is an art, but it also has a methodology and um, very you know clear measurements evaluating it and it all makes you wonder like why are we even up inside of there anyway who are we serving well you're exactly right about that but only do we need to be measuring the cervix if we're having the expectation that a woman is supposed to dilate a certain amount in a certain amount of time Um, otherwise we can simply go based on signs of transition and urge to push and you know baby's head being visible at the perineum The questions only a midwife can answer. Thank you, Tricia. That was great information. And thank you to everyone who wrote in to us this week. We appreciate it so much. We always love to hear from you at Down to Birth Show on Instagram. Call us 802-438-3696 and we will see you next time. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show, or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. 
For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. I am particularly... I am... You can say especially. I am especially concerned. It's... Particularly is a very difficult word. What was that other word it's that was so hard? The other syllables. Day? Particularly. Particularly. Um, what was the other word that was so hard the other day?